You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. Awesome. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter... Well, we're going to cover a couple chapters today, kind of. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 7 through 9, but we're just kind of doing an overview of those those chapters, and then we will go uh, into them more depth. Um have you ever been watching a television series that you really, really like? You really like this television series, and then all of a sudden there's this extremely slow episode. And the purpose of that episode is to uh, keep the, movie, the story moving, but it's not really all that entertaining. These are called expositional episodes. Uh, and the reality is that sometimes they're not entertaining at all, but they are designed to help move the plot forward. They're designed to provide you with information that are going to help the the story move along. They're trying to give you, the audience, insight into where the show is going by showing you where the characters have been or what the characters have been doing, uh, what events that have happened in their lives are causing them to make decisions that they're choosing to make right now. When one of these episodes contains a lot of information and it kind of overwhelms the audience, it's called an info dump. Here's the thing. This morning's sermon is going to be an info dump, okay? It's going to be, so just get ready. Um, It's going to be an info dump. It's going to be uh, expositional in nature, and that will show you what we need to know and what we need to glean out of the next seven weeks as we travel through John chapter 7 through 9. So it's really important that we kind of understand what's going going on. So I ask that you would would bear with me as we enter into this, uh, this sermon this morning. Um, as we give an overview kind of of John chapter 7 through 9. The big question in these three chapters, 7, 8, 9, is, is Jesus the Messiah? That's the big question that's being asked in those three chapters. And it comes right on the heels of Jesus asking his disciples, his 12 disciples, he asked them this, you don't want to leave me too. You don't want to go away too, after some of the disciples left, after his hard teaching. And it comes... These seven, chapter seven through nine, come after Peter says this. Simon Peter, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So the correct answer to the question, is Jesus the Messiah, is yes, he is. But we're going to look at some examples of people who are asking questions other than, is Jesus the Messiah? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word. I pray that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you have for us this morning. Lord, that even though there's going to be a lot of information, Lord, I pray that. I pray that we are able to glean from it what you would have us to understand about the importance of the events and the time that Jesus is taking here in these three chapters, Lord. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, it says this. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel to Judea, because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. All right, so Jesus is traveling, and people want to kill him. And then John tells us that the Jewish, Jewish festival of shelters is near, and this is important. So, This can be called the festival of shelters, of booths, of tabernacles. It just depends on what your translators of your specific Bible uh, uses. 
for our purposes, I'm going to continue to call it the Festival of Tabernacles, even though it says the Festival of Shelters here. But they're all the same thing. So the Festival of Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Shelters are all the same thing. Uh, they're just It's just a word that there are many definitions for, and they, they use it that way. Now, we don't celebrate these feasts. Right? We don't celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle. We don't celebrate the Passover uh, other than Resurrection Sunday, and we don't celebrate all these Jewish festivals. But the people living before Jesus, the li people living during Jesus' time, and the, people, the Jewish people living after Jesus celebrate these feasts. And these fe feasts and these festivals have a great importance to them. In fact, in the Jewish uh, calendar year, there are three main feasts that they partake in. One is the Passover, one is Pentecost, and one is the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Festival of the Tabernacles. Now this is important, okay, because if you are a male in and around Jerusalem, you are required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. John already talks about Passover. We've encountered two Passover events in John's Gospel. There's going to be a third one, but right now he's focusing on this Feast of the Tabernacles. The Festival of the Tabernacles took place in the Jewish month of Tishri, Okay, Tishri is basically around September and October in our uh, Gregorian calendar. Okay, the month of Tishri begins with a feast of trumpets, and this feast of trumpets, what it was designed to do was to call people to repentance and to gathering. They were to they would stand out on the temple uh, and they would blow these horns, these little shofars, to call the people to repentance and call the people to gather together, and. That would happen, and then five days after the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, would take place, where the priest would sacrifice a goat, and he would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The only time of the year that he could go into God's presence, and he would sprinkle blood on the altar for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation. It was the most important day. This day was the only time that any person and only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go in. These actions on the Day of Atonement would symbolically lead the Jewish people into the Lord's presence. The sacrifice would then cleanse them of all that past year's sins, of all the sins from the past year. So the month of Tishri, this month, would begin with the call of repentance and, and have a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. It would begin with Turn to the Lord, and at Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, their sins would be forgiven. The repentance and the sacrifice would prepare people for what some Jewish scholars call the holiest of all feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast or festival would take place five days after the Day of Atonement. And this is the festival that's at hand right here in John chapter 7 through 9. After the Day of Atonement, they would celebrate this festival was a time where the Jewish people in and around the area would actually build shelters to live in. They would actually build little houses, little tents for them to live in outside. And why would they do this? Well, the reason they do it is because God commanded it. If we go back to Leviticus chapter 23, it says this, starting in verse 33, The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, the festival of shelters to the Lord begins on the 15th day of this month and continues for seven days. There is to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You are to not do any daily work. You are to present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the eighth day, you are to hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. 
You are to do no work, any daily work. These are the Lord's appointed times that you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for presenting food offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifice and drink offerings, each on its designated day. These are in addition to the offerings for the Lord's Sabbath, your gifts, all your vow offerings and your free will offerings that you give to the Lord. You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days. After you gathered the produce of the land, there will be complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generation. Celebrate it in the seventh month. You are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in shelters so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared the Lord's appointed time to the Israelites. God gives instructions on how they are to celebrate this festival of tabernacles. It's basically like a week-long camping trip. And the kids would look forward to it every single year. This time where they get to build these booths and live outside with their parents. They would build these temporary shelters to remind them of the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. The festival was specifically a time for Jewish people to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, that's what God tells them in verse 40 of, of Leviticus chapter 23. Rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Now this was a time to rejoice and to remember and to look forward to God's provision. They would look back and remember God's provision for them after freeing them from Egypt. He provided for them in the wilderness the water from the rock and the manna and the quail from heaven. They looked at the present provision by rejoicing in the harvest that God had given them. The festival celebrated around the harvest of olives and grapes and other fruits. This festival became a celebration of looking forward to the Messiah as well as looking back on God's deliverance and looking presently at God's provision. And it seems fit that Jesus the Messiah would show up at this festival to proclaim who he is. You see, the Israelites were to, pro to rejoice in God's gift, both are all present, past, and future. The fe festival was ori originally commanded for seven days, but the Jewish leaders along the way ended up add adding an extra day to the festival, so the festival would last eight days. But they didn't just add an extra day to the festival, they added extra things to it as well. Before Jesus' time, people added a couple of elements to these, this festival, this Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is going to point to them as proof of who he is. One of the ceremonies they added was what is called a libation ceremony. And what they would do is each day of the festival, the priest would walk down from the temple to the pool of Siloam at the bottom of the temple steps. They would take a golden um, cistern and they would take water out of that, out of the pool of Siloam and they would walk back up the steps. They would walk to the altar and they would pour out water on the altar. Once arriving, they would pour that out. And this was a ritual to remind them of God's provision of water in the wilderness. If you look back on Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20, you will find the miracle of the, the water flowing from the rock, providing water for the Israelites and all of their livestock. 
And as they were pouring the water, they would quote Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. So Jesus takes this tradition and makes something more of it. In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says this, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing deep within him. Jesus is reflecting on this event, this libation ceremony, and he is reflecting on Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And Jesus is saying, I am the springs of salvation. Jesus is claiming to be that water out of Isaiah chapter 12. That he is the ultimate provision from God. He is the one that provides water that truly satisfies. Water that brings life. If those present are thirsty for the truth, he will satisfy them. Those who are present are longing for the provision of God. And he's saying, I am here. Drink from this living water. And this invitation is not just to those who are present at the ceremony. It is offered to all who will come to him. Those who are thirsty, those who are drinking from the well of the world, he's saying you're going to just continue to be thirsty if you want life, if you want satisfaction, come to me and drink from me. Know that your soul will be satisfied. Salvation is here. Another element that they added to the, to the ceremony it was on the seventh night of the festival. They had these giant candelabras. They were so tall you had to use ladders to get to the top of them um, in the temple court, courtyard. And one theologian says that what they did was they were burning the, um, the used garments of the priest. They would pour oil on them and they would, they would burn them because they can't be used anymore. But on the seventh night of the celebration, these candelabras would be lit. And they would give off an immense light. The light would light up the whole of Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem could see the light. One ancient source says, He who has never seen the illumination ceremony has never seen true joy. And it was around this time that Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is thinking about the ceremony and the light coming from Jerusalem and saying, I am the true light I am greater than this ceremony. I am greater than this festival. I am the light that pierces the darkness. I am the light that draws people to God. I am the light that provides life. Then to put a more, more pointed explanation as Jesus uh, as the light of the, in the world. In John chapter 9, we see that Jesus heals a blind man. He gives a man who lived in darkness the ability to see. He has pierced the darkness and provided light. But we'll talk about that in a few more weeks. What's interesting is that these two events, the, the libation ceremony and the candelabra ceremony, weren't originally part of this event. They added it to them. And he, Jesus here is using the additions to show that he is greater than anything that we can add to a ceremony. He is greater than anything that we can add to our religion. He is the Messiah. He is the light of the world. He is the water for thirsty souls. That is him. All the fe feasts are fulfilled in his coming, especially the Feast of the Tabernacle. It's no accident that John opens his gospel 
with these words in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to dwell with his people. And that word dwell is better translated tabernacle. So Jesus came to tabernacle with his people. And here at the Feast of Tabernacles, they are celebrating God's provision and they are missing the Savior. They are missing God's actual provision. There's nothing that we can do that will ever satisfy us the way that Jesus does. Jesus meets and exceeds and obliterates all of our expectations. He is so much greater, so much more awesome, so much more holy than we could ever imagine. And the most amazing thing about this is that from the beginning of time, God was orchestrating and he was arranging all of these events to help people see Jesus as the promised Messiah. None of this was done on accident. Jesus didn't accidentally show up at the Festival of Tabernacles. Jesus didn't accidentally die during the Passover feast. Jesus didn't accidentally fulfill scripture. This was all planned and organized by a holy and righteous God. And it was designed so that we could have a new and vibrant relationship with him. Here's one last cool thing about the Festival of Tabernacles. It is the only festival in all of the Old Testament scripture that prophesies all peoples will worship at the Festival of Tabernacles. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, it says this, And all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. This feast of celebration is open to all people who will come and worship the Lord. This is supposed to, supposed by some to be the, the feast that we see in Revelation chapter 21. And one day, all of those who have placed their trust in Jesus will take part in rejoicing for his provision, rejoicing in his salvation. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, while he's at this uh, festival, there's lots of questions that are going to be asked about who he is and what he has come to do. And there's a lot of speculation about Jesus. We'll dive more in depth in the next couple of weeks, but here are a few of them. These statements that I'm going to read are from the crowds who are looking for Jesus. So in John chapter 7, verse 12, it says this, And there was a lot of murmuring about him from the crowds. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others are saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. And then in verse 15 of chapter 7, then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learn, learned since he hasn't been trained? And in verse 20 of chapter 7, you will have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? They're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. They're trying to understand who this Jesus is. And so they don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to categorize them, so they're just throwing out all these different types of things to try to fit Jesus into this box. But in addition to the crowds not knowing what to do with Jesus, he also has an encounter with his brothers not knowing what to do with him as well. John chapter 7, verse 3 through 9, it says this, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works, see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed him. Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. 
after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. I know there he tells you that he, he's not going to the festival, but he eventually does in the next section um, that we're going to talk about next week. But Jesus is concerned about his calling, right? Jesus' calling is more important to him than what his brothers think about him. And I want to be fair. There are some who push back against um, these men being called his brothers. They believe that Jesus was the only child of Mary, and therefore he didn't have any brothers. But the text is pretty clear that these are his brothers. One of the arguments against this is that this word brothers, Adelphi, Adelphoi uh, in Greek, um, sometimes can be translated cousins. But here's the thing, in the New Testament it's never translated cousins. It's always translated brothers. And if you aren't convinced by John's declaration that they're his brothers, Matthew in chapter 13, verses 55 through 56 says this when they're talking about Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And then also in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. So throughout the Gospels, it's always pointed out that Jesus has brothers and sisters. They're, they aren't just his cousins. So uh, Mary had more than just Jesus after Jesus. Jesus was the oldest. They were his half-siblings. Anyway, Jesus' siblings don't know what to do with him. They're confused by him. But they don't believe he is the Messiah. They don't believe that he is the promised one. I mean, let's be honest. We give them a lot of flack. Why can't you believe him? But if your brother or your sister came up to you and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, would you really believe them? Would you believe them? You've lived with them. You spent time with them. Like, I don't know. You may be special, but I don't think you're that special, right? So they don't know what to do with them. So in order to, to help their case, what they're doing is they're urging Jesus to go to the festival. They're urging Jesus to go to the festival so that he can do more works. They're pushing Jesus to step into the limelight, to go and make his power and presence known. To them, Jesus was acting like a podunk prophet. But they wanted him to go and prove himself to the masses. If you are who you say you are, go make yourself known. In their thinking, if Jesus really wanted to show people who he was, he would go to the festival and not pull out any stops. Like he would do everything to make them understand who he is. What I find interesting is that his brothers had seen or at least heard of some of the works that he, had done, he was doing. But John lets us know that they still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember when John talks about belief in the gospel, he always centers it around life change, right? A life-changing belief. Someone who is transformed and devoted to Jesus. So even though they have seen his works, there's many people who have seen his works, including his brothers. Even though they have heard his message, and there are many people who have heard his message, including his brothers. Even though they know his deeds, and there are many people who know his deeds, including his brothers, they still live in unbelief. It's almost like nothing that he could do could transform them like they need a revival from the Father, that they need a revival from the Holy Spirit. They were around Jesus, but they did not believe in Jesus. And unfortunately today, we have a lot of people who have been around Jesus, but don't know Jesus. And so we have to show them Jesus. We have to point them to Jesus, saying, this is who he is. See, their proximity and their relationship to Jesus did not guarantee their belief. It did not guarantee their salvation. We can't expect that anyone will come to Jesus except through personal faith. Like, we can't save our family members, right? We can't save our family members by believing harder in Jesus. You can't be saved because your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa or anyone else trusted in Jesus. Trust in Jesus is a personal devotion to him. 
And it can't be accomplished by proxy or through someone else. Now we do have good news. Some of Jesus' brothers that we know did end up believing in him. James and Jude, a couple who wrote uh, letters in the New Testament. But they came to him individually, and they trusted him as Savior. However, that didn't happen until after his resurrection. I'm telling you what, if I saw my dead brother walking again, I'd probably believe in him too, right? So while Jesus was ministering during his time on earth, they didn't believe. But when he died and he rose again, they said, ah, I see it now. You are who you claim to be. Now part of the problem with the brothers is that they assumed and presumed on Jesus that if he is who he says he is, then his desire was to gain a massive following. Why did they assume that? Well, because they had a wrong understanding about what the Messiah would look like. See, to them, the Messiah, the Savior, was going to look like someone who came in and saved the Jewish people from Rome. That was what their idea of who Jesus is, that he would overturn the government. And the only way that he would overturn the government is if he had a huge following to help back him up. But they were wrong about Jesus' mission. They were wrong about what he came to do. And we can do the same thing with Jesus. We can expect from him what he never promised. right? We can expect from him what isn't part of his mission. Our wrong expectations about Jesus can lead us into a worship of a false Jesus and not the Jesus that is revealed in Scripture. We do this when we think Jesus is more concerned about our health and our wealth and our happiness than he is with saving and refining us to look like him. We do this when we believe that Jesus is more concerned with politics than he is with his own kingdom. We do this when we expect Jesus to be anything other than who he says he is. But Jesus isn't concerned with who we think he should be or what we think he should be concerned with. He's got something greater in mind. Jesus isn't to be used by us for our own gain. We are to be used by him for his own purposes. You see, Jesus' brothers wanted him to prove himself to everyone by being the one who they thought he should be. And the best way they thought they could do it was for him to go down to this festival and do more works. But Jesus wasn't about this type of showmanship. He responded to them in verses 6 through 8. He says this, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. You see, Jesus is governed by his Father's schedule. He lives on a divine time. He is never early. He is never late. He arrives exactly when he expects to. And this time isn't the time for him. This is similar to what Jesus tells his mom in John chapter 2 when she asks him to go make some more wine, go figure out this problem. He responds to her, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. See, Jesus is never going to be moved by our demands, our wills, or our expectations. We can never make God do anything he hasn't already planned or thought out beforehand. And that should bring us comfort. That he doesn't work willy-nilly. He's got a plan and he's got a mission in mind. And he is ultimately in control. And he's going to do it the way that he wants to do it. And he doesn't do anything that runs contrary to his own will and his own mission. And this is demonstrated to us in Jesus' commitment to God's plan. That nothing is going to shake him. 
Nothing is going to push him. Nothing is going to distract him from his father's mission. He is always about his father's mission. He is always about his father's will. And he's not going to let anyone distract or detract from him, from that reality in any way. He has a plan. He's on on a mission. And when the time is right, he's going to move. And because he is about his father's business and his father's plan, people are going to run against him because we're more concerned with our what we want and not what God wants. Jesus reveals this to his brothers. He says that the world is going to hate me. It does not hate you, but it's going to hate me. There are those who hate Jesus because of his own devotion to God's will and God's mission. That he's more concerned about his own glory than he is your comfort. There are a couple reasons why people hate him. The first is that because he exposes our sin. He exposes our wickedness. He is the light that exposes the darkness within them. And people hate having their sin exposed. They especially hate it if they don't understand that it is a grace of God to have your sin exposed. If you are living in sin, if you're living in the darkness, then you don't want your deeds to be exposed because it's painful. And that Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 that people love darkness more than light. And when he exposes your sin, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to run to him or run away from him. And if you run to him, you'll know the grace that he extends. That he's not trying to condemn you. He wants to save you. That he came not to condemn but to save. Have you ever thought about the fact that having your sins exposed is a gracious gift of God? Think about it. What does sin do to us if it's never exposed? It'll eat away at us. There's one guy um, who said it this way. He says, sin takes you farther than you want to go. Keeps you longer than you want to stay. It costs you more than you want to pay. Sin takes you farther than you want to go. Keeps you longer than you want to stay. and costs you more than you want to pay. Those whose deeds are evil, those who live in wickedness, wickedness don't want to be exposed. And that is why they hate Jesus. That is why they wanted to kill Jesus. That is why they wanted to nail Jesus to the cross, because they don't see the grace in the exposure. In this account, Jesus tells us that his time has not yet come. But I want you to know that Jesus' time did come. His time to lay his life down and pay the debt that sinners owe. People also hate Jesus because he exposes their religion isn't going to save them that they can never obtain God's full pleasure by following rules, by following guidelines, that Jesus is more concerned with life change over rituals. You see, as, as creatures, we want to do, 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 do in order to be right with God. But God says, stop doing and trust me. I've already done it all. There is nothing that you can do that will add to what I have done and what, and t- or take away from it. You see, Jesus knew exactly what the will of God was. And that was to offer a way for sinful people like you and me to have a relationship with God. And the only way that could happen was through his perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He wants to invite you to his family. He wants to celebrate. He wants you to celebrate this feast of renewal, this feast of provision. He wants you to take you from unbelief to belief, from death to to life, from doubt to faith. You see, Jesus is calling out to you. He's saying, come to me. 
you are thirsty, come and drink. If you are hungry, come and eat. If you want fullness that will satisfy, come to Jesus. That is what he wants. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Lord, and as we enter into this time of reflection by singing some songs and thinking about the goodness of who you are and what you have done, Lord, I pray, I pray that we will know, that we will come, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful more for what you've done and who, who you want us to be. Transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we sing this. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.